We're starting a brand new series today called Won't You Be My Neighbor? <laughs> Won't You Be My Neighbor? We're going to start off in Luke chapter 10. It's one of the most, it's one of the famous stories in the Bible, places in the Bible. Verse 25, behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, that's Jesus, to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Jesus said, what, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus sums it all up right here. Simple, right? We'd all go home. We had a good day, right? That's it. That's, that's a sim- How many of you guys know that some of the simple things, uh, I mean, it's a simple concept. Love God with everything you got. And then love your neighbor, basically with everything you got. Okay, it's a simple idea, but how do you guys know that's not always easy, right? I mean, come on, can we just be real for just a second? It's not always easy to love God with everything, and it's not always easy to love your neighbor, because how many of you guys have had some pretty crummy neighbors before? How many of you guys have had, I mean, just in the natural, I, I had this one neighbor one time who, I mean, it seemed like 24-7, he was just across the street, he would just be smoking a cigarette and just staring at my window, like... Every time, look, yep, there he is. At night, you just see glowing red embers, just like, he's just still there. I'm not kidding. And so how many of you guys have had some neighbors like that? Uh, I remember one time, it, how do you guys know it'd be easy to love your neighbor if everyone was normal, right? And I don't know about you, but a lot of people just aren't normal to me. And so give you one example. A few years ago, we bought our house and we had a wood stove that I was trying to sell that we didn't need. And so I'm trying to put it out on Craigslist. How many of you guys love Craigslist? Craigslist is a place where you can haggle with people through email. It's awesome. And so uh, I put it out there on Craigslist. Wasn't getting what I wanted for it. And finally, this person from South Missouri emails me and says, I'll give you full price. And uh, so we start going back and forth and I'll give you full price. I'll give you cash. I'll come up and get it tomorrow with a couple of my boys. And I, and I, a little ways through it, I start to think he's from South Missouri. He's offering full price. He's offering cash. I'm starting to think I'm getting scammed here. How many of you guys know you're supposed to deal locally with people and stuff, but I'm like, he says, he's going to give me full price. He says, he's going to give me cash. And so I'll roll the dice on this. And so the next day, uh, it's about the time when, when they're supposed to be showing up. And I'm looking off in the distance and off uh, this 15-passenger this van starts rolling down the street where we're at. And there's writing all over it, like paint all over it. And it says, as it starts to come closer, it looks like an ice cream truck coming in my direction. And, but what it says on it is stuff like, like uh, divorce and remarriage is a sin. Like adultery is a sin. You're going to hell. I mean, all this stuff is written on this van. I'm not kidding you. And so he pulls up and he comes out and he looks like he's from South Missouri, okay? <laughs> Further south, like Arkansas or something like that, not, not Missouri. So, <laughs> And then out come literally 14 kids and they're all dressed like Little House on the Prairie. And they all have names that start with, with I think it was Jay. They all had the same name, like start Jedediah, Joe Biden. And I, they all start popping out. And he lines them all up and introduces them to all of me. They're all, I'm like, what is happening right now? He hands me a card that says something to the effect, and I saved it for a little while, but it says something to the effect of repent, sinner. And he hands me the card. And I said, I'm a pastor. He said, oh, good. He said, because you never know what kind of people you're going to deal with on Facebook. I'm glad to deal with some normal people. 
That's a 100% true story. I am not making up any part of that story. Every bit of that happened to me. And I think sometimes God just has those things happen to me so I can just give it to you for your benefit. So, but how you guys know, it would be easy to love people if everyone was normal people, right? But how you guys know, everybody doesn't seem to always be normal. And so that was what this guy in scripture was wrestling with. He's like, okay, if I'm supposed to love people, then who technically qualifies as a normal neighbor for me to love? Who's, who qualifies as somebody I'm supposed to love? And so Jesus goes off in verse 29, says, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who's my neighbor then? And Jesus replied, let me tell you a story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was, was coming down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on by the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, and these are both like church religious type leaders. And he says, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave, to, gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus asked him, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I want you to see something right there that Jesus asked the question, which one of him proved to be a neighbor? He didn't ask, to, ask him who he was, which one was the neighbor. He said, which one proved to be a neighbor to the person who was beaten? See, a lot of times we're trying to qualify who the neighbor is. And Jesus says, no, you are to be the neighbor to the neighbor. So throughout this series, we're going to look at what it takes to be a neighbor. And there are multiple areas of our life that that applies to, and we'll get into that, uh, to who is our neighbor. But today I want to talk about something uh, that maybe we don't talk about enough. And that is it, our neighbors being our friends and our friendships. It's a very practical issue that we want to wrestle with today. And because I think sometimes we, we just think of, our, of friendships and struggling in friendships, like in the areas with our kids or something, like they're struggling to find friends. But how many guys would just be honest that even as adults, it's difficult to walk in friendship with people, isn't it? I mean, it really is. And so what does that really look like? Friendship is a really big deal to God. I mean, it was a big deal when Abraham became the friend of God. That title of friend of God was a very big deal. So friendship is a big deal with God and it's hard for us to wrestle with. And too many times if we're, if we're honest... Even in the body of Christ, where the mark is supposed to be our love one for another, isn't it, isn't it too often that we find that we think we have real friendships, but it turns out that we really don't? And in fact, I think it was Andy Stanley who said that too many times what we think are our friendships at work, at church, or just in, in random places where we find ourselves... We, we walk away from a job, and how many of you guys have felt this before, where you thought you had friends at this job, but then you changed jobs, and no longer you, you didn't have the connection anymore. Maybe you went from one church to the next, and what you thought was a solid friendship, all of a sudden the circumstances change, and, and you, you don't really have that deep of a friendship with people. And he said this, he said, it's, it, too many times it's not a case where we actually have friends and we're losing them. It's actually a case of just simply intersecting schedules. So in other words, you end up 
being friends because you end up at the same job at the same time every day throughout the week. And so it has a simulation of genuine relationship when there's actually not. And the same thing happens with us as the body of Christ. We show up at the same place. We show up at the same small group. We show up at whatever it is. And we haven't really taken the time to understand what it's really like to cultivate deep friendships with one another. And we just have a case of intersecting schedules. And so when the schedule changes, it seems like the relationship changed when actually the relationship was never there. So what we want to do is we want to change that here. How many of you guys would like to change that here? But if, to, if we're going to do that, it's going to require work. Now, several years ago, uh, when our church had been several years old, a few years old at this point, we were still set up and, set up and tear down church, which is a lot of fun, by the way, guys. And, and uh, if, you're, if you're ever wanting to go in to do that, just, just you know, come talk to me or something. But uh, we were still doing that, and we could not seem to grow beyond that 100 to 150 people. We were trying to reach people. We were trying to, to preach the gospel, and we just could not seem to do that. It just seemed like it just kept hitting a lid. So I asked some pastor friends of mine, I said, this is where we're at. What do you think? And they said, you know, that's, that's interesting because we never seemed to go beyond that until we went to two services. Now, at the time, we did not need to go to two services. We didn't have enough people to go to two services. But I just said, okay, let's take out some of the chairs and make it seem like we need to go to two services. And so we removed some of the chairs. And then when, when you have a big Sunday, you put out, there's only 40 chairs out, but you put out more just to make some noise. It's just kind of how you do it. And so we, we went to two services. And before long, all of a sudden, we grew beyond that. And we started to continue to grow. And I started to analyze that later. Like, what is that? You know, there's this whole book called The Tipping Point where there's this number of 150 that all throughout history, people have grouped into groups of 150 and tribes. And as soon as it got beyond that, everything had to change. I started to analyze. Why did we grow when we went to two services? And here's what I came to the conclusion of. Without everybody even realizing it, without me realizing it or anybody, and some of you guys were a part of that, What happened is somehow along the way, when we went to two services, we dropped the expectation that we would know every person in the church. Because there was a whole other service that you may not know who goes to first service. How many of you guys have an expectation that you're going to know every single person in Journey Church? Probably not anybody here. Because you don't know who was here last night or maybe who's coming to the next service. And even when I come to all three services all uh, every single weekend, uh, it's impossible for me to know every single person. And so, listen, when you're in a church that's growing... It's impossible for you to be friends with every single person. It's impossible for you to know everybody. But here's what I want to say. You should know somebody at a deep level. You can't know everybody at a deep level, but you should know somebody at a deep level. And let me just say something really strong. Because sometimes we go into a church and we think, man, I'm not connecting. I don't have friends. I'm not plugged in. I'm not having relationships in the church. Let me just say something. Our job as a church, as Journey Church, is not to make friends for you. Our job is not to put you together and make friend matchmaker. No, that's not our job. Our job is to teach you how to be a friend. So that's my responsibility is to teach you how to be a friend. But you have a part. That means you have to come and to to put these things into practice and to actually walk the hard part out of walking in friendship. So what I want to do is I want to talk about some things today uh, that's going to help us to do that. Because, again, it would be easy to be friends 
if, we had, if everybody was normal. It would be easy to be a neighbor if this guy was our neighbor. Let's watch. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you, so. Let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor? And so we're neighbors again today. I'm glad to be with you. How many of you guys were singing along with that? Some of you guys were. You just know you were. Okay. Just kind of take you back. Because it'd be easy if you had Mr. Rogers to be friends with. I mean, you'd have a trolley and stuff and puppets. It's awesome. So uh, that guy's not our neighbor. So, uh, and it's a big deal to God. So let's, let's work on this. Let's dig into this. So there's some key things we can learn from the story that Jesus told. I believe that we can pull out and use as principles on how to walk this through. I don't want to pull it into modern day. And I want to give us some really practical things on what it takes to actually walk in friendships. This applies to any type of relationship, not just friendship, but, it, but I, I just want us to focus on that today because I think it's something we really need to get down. And, and the first thing is this. You can't friend through a screen. You can't friend through a screen. I had somebody tell me a long time ago, you can't pastor through a screen. In other words, I can't just by, you know, sit in an office somewhere and send out emails and texts and Facebook messages and all that type of stuff and really be effective uh, pastoring. But the same is true in our relationships and our friendships. We cannot effectively have real relationships uh, to the degree that we need to have through a screen. They did a a study not too long ago of 55,000 people, I believe it was BBC that did this, and they discovered that levels of loneliness, I believe it was in the ages of 16 to 24, that 40% of people in that age group uh, described that they felt lonely. Now, how many of you guys know that that age group is one of the most connected digitally of all age groups. I mean, those are the people that are most connected through screen time, through movies, through, e- through text, through uh, you know, Snapchat, through Instagram, through whatever. They're the most connected seemingly on the surface. And yet they reported 40% of them felt lonely. By contrast, those who are above the age of 75, 
Those people who should feel like maybe some of their friends have, have passed on. Maybe they have some of their families have been disconnected from them in different ways. Their social networks are not, they're, they're some of the least connected digitally or on screen. Only 27%, think about that, only 27% of those over 75 described feeling lonely. Can that, does that just tell us something? That our screens are not connecting us. And in fact, they said that people who feel lonely have more online-only Facebook friends. You can't friend through a screen. You can do a lot of things through it. You just can't friend through a screen. There's a temptation to allow the screen to create a distance and a barrier for us relationally. And that's what we see in our story Just to bring it into modern day, in Luke chapter 10, there was this temptation to create a distance. Verse 31, it says, Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and he passed by the other side. Create some distance. So likewise, a Levite came to the the place and saw me pass by the other side. Do you realize what our screens are doing? They're creating a distance for us. They really are. They bring us together in some ways, and they create a distance in so many others. You, You can't pastor through a screen, and you really can't friend through a screen. Let me say it even different way. You cannot download community. You cannot download an encounter with God. That's why the gathering of the church, all of us physically in the same room, will never go away. Because God designed it in such a way that for us to be the church, we actually have to gather physically. Because, the, in fact, the church, the name of the church, the ecclesia, it's, it's called the assembly. It's called the gathering. There's something about flesh and blood breathing the same air together, laying on of hands that will never be replaced by any technology. And yet, our technology, if we're not careful, becomes a distance between us, and screens become distancing mechanisms. I read an article not too long ago, and it was called this. It said something like, if you want to remember something... Don't take a picture. And they went on and they did this whole study about, uh, about, uh, they took a bunch of college students, they took them through a museum and they had them take pictures of some things and not take pictures of others. And then the next day they came and they, they started to talk about those things and they could remember a whole lot fewer things about the things they actually took pictures of than the things that they saw just with their own eyes. And, and they, they've done study after study with this. And so basically what's happening when you take a picture of something and you have that screen in between you and the actual object, what, your brain is te- what you're telling your brain is, I need the camera to remember this, not you. And so what happens is there's a, a, something that happens where your brain shuts off certain parts of it so that you are expecting the camera to remember the details so that you need the camera to come back and to tell you what. And so what, what I'm getting at is this, is that we're doing this in every area of our life and every screen does that to some point. It creates a barrier in between us and the actual object or the actual person. And so I, I've been trying to practice this more and more by, by living in the moment on vacation or, or, you know, trying to not be seeing everything through a screen because it's creating a barrier and it creates a barrier in relationships. And so we end up doing this in other areas of our life where we create, we use something that gives us the feeling of connectedness, but not the actuality of it. Sometimes we'll do this even when we read our Bible. 
And the Bible, in effect, becomes the screen where we begin to just read the Bible, but there's no expectation that the actual presence of Jesus is going to be with us. We do that in religious activity where we come to church and we, we end up, the church becomes the screen. It becomes something that makes us feel like we're connected to God, but there's no real expectation that we're actually in the presence of Jesus. There's no real-time relationship. All those things are fine and good, but if there's no expectation or there's no real walking with Jesus in real time, I mean, we've been designed to breathe the same air, so to speak. And so we, we've got to be careful, in our, even in our relationship with God, that we don't use mechanisms of some sort that become a substitute or a surrogate relationship with God, where we end up just reading the Bible, but there's no expectation that I'm going to feel the presence of God or walk with God through that. It just becomes words on a page. Now listen, can, can Jesus be present in that moment? Absolutely, but we come with expectation for that. So let me just give you an application point of this point, and it's simply, it's very practical. But it's this, who will you meet with face-to-face this week? Not who will you send a text to, not who will you FaceTime, not who will you whatever. Not, no, who will you face-to-face? Because God designed us to be in the, same, in the same space with one another. And so, very, very practical. Now, the second thing is this, and you're going to love this one, but you can't friend without a mess. You can't friend without a mess. Let's watch. All right. So a couple months ago, uh, we remodeled our whole kitchen. I mean, it was a disaster before. There were walls everywhere. It was small. We have a big family. And it was just really, really difficult to work with. So we knocked down the walls. We put this big, beautiful island out here. And we noticed something that started to happen that wasn't happening before. All of a sudden, everybody started to gather in the kitchen. And so everybody gathers around the island. Everybody begins to have conversations. And really, it became a a beautiful thing. But we also discovered this, that whenever you gather people, uh, there's a mess. And so I, the biggest part of shooting this video so far today uh, was me cleaning off the island because, to make it look beautiful because there's generally a lot of stuff on here. There's a lot of stuff from cooking. People have been cooking or setting their stuff on here because people, when they gather, make a mess. In fact, uh, the counter right over here, you're only seeing a portion of the counter because I pushed everything back so that you can't see all of the mess because whenever we gather, we have a mess generally. And so we see that in our story in the book of Luke. We've been following through our Good Samaritan story in verse 33. It says this, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion and he went to him. He bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And so while the others were avoiding the mess, this good Samaritan, he entered the mess. Now, a lot of us, we have this expectation when it comes to relationships, when it comes to friendships. We know it's unrealistic, but we still have this expectation that we're going to enter into relationships and they're going to be mess-free. We know it's a wrong expectation, but we still have it otherwise, and we begin to kind of let everything rise and fall based on if there's a mess or not, we'll push away. We'll go to the other side. We won't enter into that. And, and if we think about it, though, if we look back on some of our best memories, some of our best memories are the messes in our life. Think about your family. I was thinking about that this week and I was thinking back to when my son, who's 21 years old right now at the time, but when he was two years old, 
I, I take, take myself back here to this place. And, and we had this house and this, this table where we were sitting down having dinner one night. And he's having his mac and cheese. He's two years old. He's got his shirt off. I mean, he's got his two-year-old uh, bare-chested body get, eating his mac and cheese like a man. I mean, he's eating his mac and cheese. And I don't know what came over me. But all of a sudden, I'd look down at my mac and cheese, and I just grabbed a handful of it. And I chucked it across the room at him, and it just slapped on his bare-chested two-year-old man body. And it just stuck mac and cheese right on top of him. And it just stuck there. And he looked across the table, didn't skip a beat, grabbed his macaroni and cheese and threw it right back at me. And before long, there's mac and cheese flying everywhere. It's sticking to the walls. It's, he's covered in mac and cheese. Becca is just sitting there, just eyes like this, like, what did I marry? What is happening here? All of a sudden, two guys are just having a macaroni and cheese fight. It's one of my favorite memories. Uh, another one of my favorite memories is when Becca was taking a shower. And I've told this many times because this is one of my favorite memories. And she was taking a shower. She didn't know that I had entered into the bathroom. And she had just got done and she flings open the curtain to which I took a bucket of flour and threw it all over her, instantly making glue, which was an awesome thing. And it it, it was one of our... One of my favorite memories that I have. And she looked at me after that and she said you're cleaning up this mess. (laughs) And so I did. So I cleaned up the mess. And that's really what we have to be willing to do in relationships, in friendships, is be willing to clean up the mess. Because what's going to happen when you have a mess in a relationship, in a friendship, in any type, a marriage, what's going to happen is people generally have two responses or two options. One, become a file cabinet where you begin to store Memory after memory of mess after mess, and it's all the bad memories. It's all the record of wrongs. The first Corinthians chapter 13 talks about love and how love does not keep a record of wrongs. Or you're going to do another thing. You're going to be a person who decides to work through the mess, who decides to clean up the mess, who decides to walk in relationship. And once you've begun to work through, and as much as it depends on you to live at peace, Take those wrongs, that record of wrongs, the big messes, and put them into a paper shredder and just begin to shred those up in the love of Christ. And you can do that in Jesus Christ. There was a, uh, a lady who uh, was in the, uh, in the Holocaust when she was 16. She was at one of those, uh, I'm just going through horrible stuff, horrible stuff. And she wrote a book uh, sometime later, a long time later, when she was in her 80s, I believe. And in the book, she had a, a couple quotes. I mean, so imagine she's gone through uh, horrible stuff in her life. But she said this. She said, time doesn't heal. It's what you do with the time. Healing is possible when we choose to take responsibility, when we choose to take risks. And, and finally, when we choose to release the wound, to let go of the past. And then she said this, she said, the only place where we can exercise our freedom of choice is in the present. We can't go back and we can't fix everything. We can't choose to love in that moment. Really, it's our responsibility because of what Jesus has done for us. It's our responsibility to live free, not to live free from the responsibility of loving others, but to live free, if at nothing else, to live free from offense in our hearts. That even though messes happen when people gather, that we're to live free 
in our hearts. And so I want to give you just an application of this point right now. And here's just a question. What, what wrongs, what list do you need to put through the paper shredder? What mess do you need to go and attempt to clean up, to work through instead of avoiding the mess? What mess do you need to step into for the sake of relationship, for the sake of healing, for the sake of, of entering into a deeper friendship? Maybe it's in your marriage, whatever it is, because you can't friend, you can't neighbor without a mess. Amen. You got to have a good paper shredder if you want to walk in relationships. Let me give you a sign of spiritual maturity. A sign of spiritual maturity is when you start becoming the solution to problems instead of being the problem. So when we know there's a mess and somebody's got to step up and do the right thing. Somebody's got to step up and be the one to forgive. Someone's got to step up and start walking in love. That's a sign of spiritual maturity. The, the last point that I can really hit on today is this, number three. You can't friend with a mask. Luke chapter 10, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. What we see here is the most significant part of this whole story. Right here. We just saw it right there. You see, in that culture, you know, the, the priests and the Levites were the revered ones. They, in that Jewish, they were the ones that we at least be looked up to in some way. But the Jews did not like the Samaritans at all. They hated the Samaritans. And so Jesus does something in telling the story where he puts not the priest or the Levite or one of the Jewish heroes to be the hero of the story. He actually used someone that they despised to become the hero of the story and ultimately the best neighbor. And so what that did is that caused them to check everything in their heart about not only who could be a neighbor, but who this guy was. And that's the beauty of this story, that this Samaritan, he didn't have to try to come, become a priest or a Levite to become the good guy in the story. He just simply was himself. And he brought himself into the story, thus creating the best part of the story. And all of us are tempted in any type of relationship to put on a mask of some sort to make ourselves look better, to make ourselves more impressive, to, make, to mask the hurt or the insecurity or whatever it is. And here's the deal about masks. That whenever you have a mask and whenever someone shows you love when you're wearing a mask, guess what's happening? You're not really receiving that love. The mask is receiving the love. The cultivated self is receiving the love. Do you realize that that is why we feel empty? We put on a mask and we put on our best self and it's not even our real self. And then people will praise us or say it's encouraging things about us. And it falls flat because we know deep down it's not really us that's getting the praise or getting the encouragement or receiving the love. And so, there, so we feel empty. And that's why our friendships feel hollow. That sometimes our marriages feel hollow. Sometimes our church relationships feel hollow because whenever we're seeing one another, we're not really seeing one another. Whenever we're encouraging one another, we're not really encouraging one another. We're encouraging the false self. And because of that, emptiness abounds. What if there was a place that you could go to, a room, where you walked in and everything was out in the open? Every, there was nothing hidden. The, everything about you was, was known. How long would you stay in that room? <laughs> Probably not too long. Why? Because there's a fear on the inside of us. 
we're afraid to be truly known. We're, we're afraid that if people really knew who we were, that we would, they would be disappointed with us, that maybe they would reject us or push back away from us and go on the other side. And the truth is, maybe that would happen. But can I just tell you that if God's word is true, which I believe it is, that the very best expression of our life can only be found when we live in authenticity. And no matter how much we try to protect ourselves thinking we're having a better life doing so, if God's word is true, the only way to have the best life that we could have is when we walk and we are fully known. I was reading a book the other day, and and for some reason it was listing a, a list of sins to avoid, or I forget what it was, but it said something like defensiveness, something I really didn't think too much of as, as a sin. I just thought, well, that's just kind of how people are. But then it listed this, this thing, and it said one of the sins was a lack of vulnerability. And I stopped because I thought, I've never thought of a lack of vulnerability as being a sin. I don't know why. I thought about it as a weakness or maybe something to work on, but for some reason I never thought of it as an actual sin, a lack of vulnerability. But then I thought thought further and I thought, well, it is because it's an attempt to deceive. And then I began to think about the first sin with Adam and Eve, and of course we know that they took the fruit and all that type of stuff, and that was the first sin. Then I started thinking, well, then what was the next sin? Well, the, the next sin was... Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. A lot of times, for whatever reason, when I've read that, I just thought that was just their natural reaction. They were just working through, processing what had happened. But now I come to see that the, the, the second sin, you could make a case that the second sin was actually them hiding. An attempt to deceive God from who they really were. And this is a really big problem. And that's why I want to just challenge you in your relationships, in your marriage, in your friendships, wherever. What area of your life, in your friendships, your relationships, do you find that you're still hiding Because we will never have the depth of relationship that God created us to have when we're deceiving one another and we're putting on masks. Let me give you a question. If you really are serious about this, if you're really serious about this, which there's probably going to be a handful of you that will do this. If you really want to stop hiding, go to a trusted friend and ask them this question. You ready? Ask them this question. What is it that everyone else knows about me, but no one is willing to say? That question takes a lot of guts. I've had people who've told me, because I've, I've shared that question before, and they're just like, I just can't ask people that. And, to, and there's something about us that until we're free to that level, we're going to be walking in a shallowness of relationships for the rest of our life. So here's an application to this. What area of your life is hidden that needs to be brought out into the open? And I just want to make clear about this. I'm not just talking about bad stuff. Because there's so many times when there's good stuff, treasure on the inside of us that we're not bringing to the surface because we're afraid, we're insecure, we're, we've been hurt in the past and we don't want to bring it to the surface so we just keep it down. 
What about us needs to come to the light? Because some of you guys know that when everything is in darkness, no good can happen there. But when we bring things to the light, the light of God shines upon it, and good things happen there. Uh, How many of you guys have heard this story? It's a story that was told uh, several thousand times, actually, a long time ago, probably 100 years ago or something. Uh, It's a story called Acres of Diamonds. Has anybody heard that story before? A few people, a handful of people? It's a, I'll just tell it briefly, just kind of a summary of it. But it's basically a story of, of this guy in Africa who had a farm, he had a family, and it's around the time when they were starting to discover a lot of diamonds in Africa. And so uh, the people were finding diamond mines and they were getting rich, and he decided that he was going to jump in on this. And so he was all just consumed with this idea that he was going to find them. And so he sold his farm off, he left his family, he went in search of trying to find diamonds, trying to find all this stuff. And he kept searching and searching. Finally, he ran out of money, had no money left, got so depressed about it that he threw himself into the river and died. That's the end of the story. No, that's not the end of the story. Meanwhile, the guy who bought his farm discovered a rock one day, set it up on his mantle. It was a funny looking rock. And somebody came by one day and said, you know what's in there and started to chip away? There's a diamond in there. And it turned out they started to discover it became one of the largest diamond mines ever discovered right there on the farm where he was. Now, the the, the point of the story, the moral of the story is simply, it's obvious. It's like sometimes we're looking for so many things outside when it's right there all along. And I want to encourage you that God has great things on the inside of you that if you would just bring them to the surface for others to see, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and just bring your whole self to a relationship, that that's the way God intended for us to be. I'm not just talking about just putting your whole self out there. Now, let's just walk around and just air our dirty laundry out to everybody. And you're like, Pastor Sean, why don't you just tell us everything you've ever done wrong, thought wrong? or what? No, because everything that's personal is not necessarily pastoral for me to share. You'd be like, what's wrong with that dude, you know? But the same is true in relationship. If you, you don't go around and share everything with everybody, because that wouldn't be good. But at the same time, if you aren't sharing all of the, if you're not sharing any of it with anybody, there's a problem. So we have to bring our whole selves there. We have to look in our relationships and our friendships. And let me just say it this way. Whatever you're looking for, you will find. If you look out on your farm and you just see dirt and dust, that's what you'll find. But if you think there might be some diamond in there. Whatever you're looking for, you'll find. If you're in a relationship right now, whether it's a marriage or a friendship or somebody in this church, whatever you're looking for, you will find. If you are looking for bad things in your friendships, you will find bad things. If you're looking for bad things in your marriage, you will find bad things. If you're looking for bad things in this church, promise you, you'll find some bad things. But I'm telling you, if you're looking for good things in your friendships, you'll find something good. If you're looking for good things in your marriage, because whatever you're looking for, you will find. If you're looking for good things in this church, I promise you, you'll find some great things in this church. Larry Randolph said it this way. He said, look for the glory God has deposited in the lives of people around you and lock onto that and drag that to the surface of your relationship with them. You can do this with your marriage. Look for the glory of God that he has deposited inside that other person. Go past all the other stuff. Lock on to that glory that God has deposited and then drag that to let that be the thing that's visible. 
Let that thing. And your children, lock on to the, because so many times you're like, man, what's, are these people going to make it as adults? I don't even know, you know. This is just, you know, somebody help me. And it, lock on. There's glory on the inside of there, the glory of God. Lock on to it, drag it to the surface, and then start speaking to that. Start calling that out in them. Start, call, start, start encouraging them in that. I want to have the worship team come back up as we're getting ready to close out. I know this has been really different because we're talking about something kind of practical, even though it deals with spiritual, talking about friendships, and this is how we friend, but this is also how we friend with God. Do you realize this? All these things we've been talking about. You can't friend God through a screen. You can't friend through a Bible app. You can't friend even just through a Bible or through religious activity. You actually invite the presence of God to be there with you. You can't just use some surrogate tool of check boxes, something that creates a simulation of relationship with God when there's actually none there. No, we have to invite the actual presence of Jesus with us. Number two, we can't friend God without some sort of mess in our life. In other words, if we are just always thinking that my relationship with God has to be perfect and I have to follow everything right or I don't have a real... No, it's not based on our perfection. It's based on his perfection. It's based on what he did, that he lived a perfect, sinless life for us. And that there's going to be some mess on our part. And we have to be willing to give that to God. We have to be willing to be open to God. And number three, you can't friend God with a mask. So listen, if you can't be vulnerable and real with God, then who can you be? So what I want to do is I just want to give us just a moment. If you'd bow your heads and close your eyes and just take a moment maybe with God right now. Could you just be real with God for just a moment and... Maybe you have some pain today that you've been hiding. Maybe you've got some difficulty in relationship. You've been trying to sweep under the carpet or whatever it is. Just for a moment, can we just be real with God? Can we just be vulnerable with God and say, God, this is where I'm at? Maybe he's, he'll bring to you a, a relationship that you need to take a list of wrongs through a paper shredder and say, you know what? As much as it depends on me, I'm going to live at peace. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to live free. Take just a moment and let God work on you. Take the mask off for just a moment. I'm convinced that if you practice this in the presence of God, it'll be easier to practice in the presence of people. We're so thankful that you count us as your friends and that we can walk with you every single day not just by words on a page but by real presence in our lives we thank you for that in Jesus name come on let's stand up and let's worship him one more time